Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 23. So what we're going to be studying tonight. We pick it up in chapter 22, verse 1. And as we come to it, we're in this part of the law of God where Moses is expanding, expounding and explaining the law of God to the children of Israel, the next generation that's about to go in. He's in the final season of his life and he's imparting to them the wisdom that he gained and the insights as the lawgiver, the meter between God and the nation of Israel. And he's covered the moral law, the Ten Commandments and those personal responsibilities. And here he's really in this stretch covering civil law. So as we come into it, we need to know the context. He's talking about like people in a society, the laws, you know, kidnapping, murder, manslaughter, and, and how you handle these things and disputes. And basically he's talking about criminal cases and criminal law. And, and that's the context. And of course, again, with Israel, they were in a covenant with God. No one ever has been in a covenant with God like this as a nation before or since. And so there is uniqueness to it. Contextually, we want to keep that in mind for who they were as the people of God entrusted with the scriptures, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior would come through this nation. And so it's very unique. So we want to keep that context. But he's telling them, when, you, when you're in the land, you have moral responsibility for you. And then there's civil responsibility for judges and administrators. And then there's the religious law, which we get a little bit of that. We've gotten a little bit of it. We might get a little bit more. So, But tonight, we're really in that civil law aspect. So think like we're going to San Ana Superior Court. And we're trying to understand things there and how that works, as well as just living in Orange County with our neighbors for such a time as this. We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says this. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it into your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey. And so you shall do with his garment with any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or ox falling down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. These first four verses reflect that agricultural society that they were in because, of course, in their world, animals were wealth. They created revenue, right? You have an ox, you have donkey. They're, burden, they're beasts of labor, and they would do burdens, and they do things, and they are part of your income and part of your wealth and assets. So when we look at Abraham and other people in the Old Testament, they had wealth because they had lots of livestock, and it was practical, and that was the way it was there. So contextually, we know that this is a responsibility for looking out for someone else's wealth, although living animals... So it's kind of a hybrid, like you're looking out for their animals, which we want to do, and, but you're looking out for their wealth. And the key phrase that comes up there in verse 3 and verse 4 is, you must not hide yourself. You know, we can't just go live in the desert by ourselves and hide from the world. We're not designed to live that way. We're meant to be interdependent with other human beings. That's the way societies work. And as much as we don't want to get involved sometimes in certain things, you can't live the human experience and not be involved in things. You can't hide yourself. And if there's a situation or circumstance to say, you just know it's the right thing to do, you need to do the right thing. Jesus taught this on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Well, and he told the story, most of us know it from the Gospel of Luke, the Good Samaritan, where the religious people were too busy to help the person in need, but the person who took his time, out of his time, to help someone else, that's the person who showed he loved his neighbor. Thus, it's a good Samaritan, because in the story, it was a Samaritan who did that. And so this is pretty, this is important, because it says, you know, we, we need to accept responsibility not to hide ourselves. And sometimes things are happening, like, oh, I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to get involved at all. That dispute right now going on, or that dog just went running down the road, or that's their problem. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a selfish thing sometimes, to just say, that's their problem. Let them figure it out. If God brings something in your wheelhouse and it's made known to you, he's making it known to you more often than not so you can be part of the solution to help those people in that situation. We can't solve the world's problems, but we can be a part of solving problems that God brings into our world that he allows us to be part of. And these are not so much problems, but opportunities where he wants, us to, wants to use us. And if we confess Christ as Lord and Savior, we're bringing salt into the situation flavor, preservatives, and we're bringing light into the situation. 
So when things are going difficult or something is happening that's out of order, we shouldn't shrink back from it, but that could be the very opportunity God's given us to be part of his order, to restore order, because God is a God of order. And we talk about this in Titus, where Paul the Apostle said to Titus, set in order things that are lacking, and things go wrong, and things happen. Not so long ago, it was when Zip, the week Zippy was born, our granddaughter, so it was four years ago, it was a very interesting week. I was asked to be the coach of the U.S. surf team for the second time. Our house almost burned down, and Zippy was born. All in one week. And our house almost burned down on Saturday night when we were at church. We had left the dryer on. So just a little life lesson. Never leave your house with the dryer on. Okay? We'd never done it before. Never thought about it. But the, the, the flint caught fire. Okay? So we left the dryer on. We had four dogs in the kennels in our garage where the dryer was. And it began to smoke, and it was not a normal smoke, and anyone would know it's not chimney smoke, this is a fire. And there was a person that lived behind us who saw the smoke on the next street behind us. They saw it and knew there was a fire, and they walked the neighborhood once to see where the fire was, and they couldn't see the source. Then they walked the neighborhood again. Then our neighbors, who are Jehovah's Witnesses, they saw something was going on, but the key person was a man called Gordon who lived down the street, who refused, after being not figuring out where the fire was, refused to give up and found that fire, went through our side fence, opened up the back garage door, because it's kind of a hard to explain, but the previous owner built like a two-way garage, and he saved our dogs, and he saved our house. And after service that night, Jennifer had gone home, and I got the call like, oh, we had a fire. The fire, the fire department was here. They did all these things, and the firemen came, and they saved our house. So the whole garage was smoke damaged. Everything in the garage was smoke damaged. All the wetsuits had to be thrown away. I just, I mean, obviously, firemen know there's, but the structure never burned. There was smoke damage, but the structure didn't burn. But this one guy, Gordon, was the one who really made the effort to find out where that smoke was coming from. And I can't tell you as an animal owner, the anxiety I felt over when I heard about this happened. I raced home. It was a Saturday night after service. And another neighbor down the street, three houses down the street, had all four of our dogs in their kennels in his living room. And Buster and even Lilo, the most thankless dog we ever had, Lilo the pug, even Lilo was glad to see me. She'd kiss everyone else in this world except me. And I did more for that dog than anyone else ever did for that dog. But that's another Bible study. But Lucy and Fitz, our Cavaliers, they were there. And I just, I was so thankful to the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord, for saving our dogs, I would have just never, oh, I don't know, I would have never forgiven myself, and I just would have never, and, you know, I was more happy the dogs were saved than our house was saved, but of course, I was grateful that our house didn't burn down either, and the fire department had come. Somebody was looking after my donkey that fell down. Somebody was looking after my ox, and they didn't hide themselves from it. They did not hide themselves from it. They went out of their way to save my house and my animals, when I didn't even know who they were. I still have the note he wrote. There was a fire in your garage. We have your dogs at the house across the street, Gordon. So I always call him a man named Gordon, who saved our house and saved my dogs, and the notes in one of my daily devotion journals. We don't hide ourselves. You know when you see the dog running down the street, the French bulldog? Man, I go after it. That's somebody's French bulldog. Hey, little buddy. Hey, little buddy. Hey, little buddy. Come here, little buddy. You know, like, that's what we do. You don't want your dog. You're like, things happen, right? So the whole idea is that you do for someone else what you want them to do for you. This is just, this is really what it means to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Israel, as a nation under God in a covenant relationship, if they would truly look after one another's goods and love their neighbors as themselves, their society would have been so much better than it was and our society would be so much better than it is. So what we need to do, and most people are pretty decent actually if you think about it, but what we really want to do is to be proactive. And again, it can be like someone's car's broken down and, and you know they need help like, and, and you can help. Now everyone's got cell phones now so it's a little different, right? They're calling somebody. But still, you know, when you see this going on and like, hey, if you can pull over and you can help, you can help. 
Like be proactive. This is saying be proactive and help others and don't hide yourself. So for me, thinking about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, for us being the church in 2021, we're not retracting and we're not hiding. We're engaging and we're serving. So when these things happen, it's an opportunity for us to say, hey, this is an inconvenience of my day. This is something I can do to, to bless someone and serve someone and help them. And that's what we can do. It, it, the context, the real application is that we're willing to help others. And I would just say this, do something. When you see the situation, we do something. And, and do what you'd want someone else to do for you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I'll share it again. When we were trying to release money to the orphanage in Uganda, and it was not, it didn't seem easy at first. It was very different than PayPal and this other stuff. and seemed complicated. And I was like, well, Lord, this is really hard. We might not, this, I don't know, this is just kind of. And what the Lord put in my heart is, if you were receiving that money, you'd find a way to get it. So why don't you release that money with the same enthusiasm that you would have to receive it? You will not hide yourself. Get the donkey, get the cow, and be a blessing to your neighbors and accept responsibility for being a human being on planet Earth and caring about other human beings and looking out for one another. Right? Amen? Amen. Yeah. So now we read on. We get a Now it's almost like the book of Proverbs because it gets like civil law. So again, I'm not saying picture Judge Judy, but maybe picture Judge Judy. Okay. So verse five, a woman should not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. God gives distinctions of the genders. Obviously, there's a man and a woman. He created them. He made them male and female. And society recognizes the distinctions of this. And it is what it is. We'll get a little more of this because a little more coming up around the corner that talks about distinction. So we'll save it for that. But it's, it's distinction. The devil likes to blur things and make things ambiguous and take beautiful art that everything is in the universe of God and, and muddle it together and remove the distinction. The devil does that with nations. He does it with genders. And he does it with righteousness and wickedness. And we have to be careful of that because God has drawn light and darkness and they don't work together, but the devil's always trying to take the distinctions of light and darkness and merge them together into a concocted color that's different than the colors of distinction that God gives light and darkness. So we'll come back to this in just a second. But verse 6 says this, If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that may prolong your days. Wow. Okay. The worst feeling you ever get is when you knock over bird's nest with eggs in it, right? Like baby birds, it's just the worst. You just, I, I know Jade has a story like that. I have our story. When we moved to our new house, I was cleaning stuff in a bird's nest. I just, I tried. And I was just so sad when those birds didn't make it. It was just the, it was just the sickest feeling ever, actually. If you, and if you love animals, you get it. So let's talk about, first of all, the context of the animals. God does really care about the animals. He, he really does. He made them. They're all unique and distinct. They're very special, like a, a platypus and a robin and just everything. They're all completely different, like how God made the octopus. And then he makes like, you know, a worm. Like everything is created. Like it's so unique and it reflects the glory of the Lord. And what we find is that people that really love the Lord tend to love animals and appreciate the life. Because God's all about life. So if you love the Lord, you're going to be about life. And every soul matters. So you're going to be all about life from the womb to the tomb. And you're going to look at the animal kingdom and see God's glory in it, and you're going to appreciate it. In fact, you might even be a great botanist, because many of the great missionaries were very much into botany, like William Carey, the father of modern missions. He's still one of the greatest botanists that ever lived. He loved plants. There's a study you can find with Pastor Chuck Smith from years ago, where he talks about plants being intelligent. And he talked about the studies that the CIA did with plants, like with the lie detector test, how plants re uh, respond to people who treated them harshly and how they respond to people who water them and talk to them. It's kind of like the talking trees in Narnia. The universe is a lot more alive than we think it is, and the design and order of God's universe is a lot more than we... Well, it says the heavens declare His glory, and it says a lot more to it than we think. And if we know God's love and we love God and we love people, we're naturally going to love his creation, and we're going to appreciate his creation, 
and we're going to value it. I'm not saying we're like giant tree huggers or something, uh, but you know, we do need trees to breathe, so just keep that in mind. But it's just that the, the, the balance of the idea is that everything is subject to man. We know that. But it's for our blessing and our benefit. What did we see last week? Hey, when you're besieging a city, don't cut down the fruit trees because you're going to want to eat the fruit from the trees. Like, that's how I'm providing for you. So when you're besieging the Samaritans and there's an apple grove out there, listen, don't cut down the apple grove to besiege the city. You're going to want to eat those apples, you know, in the autumn, right? The Honeycrisp. Don't cut down the tree because you'll all be starving in October saying, why we cut down the apple trees? It's all got order and design. The whole universe, even with the plague of sin upon us in this universe, there's order and design. What did Jesus say? He knows when a bird falls to the ground, your heavenly father. And how much more does he care for us? He feeds them and knows when they fall to the ground. What we find in many cases, especially those missionaries that went out hundreds of years ago and discovered new plants, new species, and all that kind of stuff, is their love for creation and the value of the animal kingdom, even like Dr. Livingston in Africa and stuff like that. And we also find, like Amy Carmichael particularly just loved animals and creation and insects and all that stuff because God made them. Darwin just saw a demented world from his dark, demented mind when he looked at those things. We see God's glory of design in it. That's what we see. And we find that the people that really appreciate the Lord appreciate his creation and value it. We also find that people that are brutal and vicious with humanity are generally very brutal and vicious with animals and creatures. Most violent criminals who are desensitized to empathy toward people are the same way toward animals. When I was reading the book on Catherine the Great, the great queen of Russia, 1755, 1795, same time we became a nation, same time as our Continental Congress. She, of course, was a Prussian princess, and she married Peter the Great's, great grand, Peter the Great's grandson through one of the daughters. And they brought her in this teenage princess from Prussia, modern Germany. And um, her husband was just, compl- just really sick in the head. Peter the Great's grandson was, he never had a son. He had sons that died. They didn't make it. He had two daughters that made it. This is one of the sons of the daughters. And, um, but he was demented. And I'm sure there's psychological terms for it, but he, he, he tortured animals. He played with toy soldiers all the time as an adult, and he tortured animals. And Catherine the Great, in her own writings, talks about as a teenage girl being married to this man who was never intimate with her the entire time that they were together, how she, she was so repulsed by him because of his cruelty to animals. And this one struck a nerve with me, particularly to the cavaliers that he received from England. I've got cavaliers. When you study criminal minds, and some of you have been in law enforcement, you know those people? They're, they're cruel to dogs. That's why, you know, Michael Vick went to jail. Like, there's something not right when you're, you act like that. And society recognizes it, and that's a good thing. So the whole thing about the animals right here is God's telling like us through court of law, the Jewish judge Judy, if you will, this is the guide to the law. Hey, what? You were, you were torturing a cavalier? What kind of a sick person are you? Maximum fine, maximum sentencing. Because there's something wrong with you. And if you do that to an animal, that's what you're going to do to your neighbor. And we recognize that. So you see, cruelty and disregard for creation becomes cruelty and disregard for humanity, the crown jewel of all that God made in his image. And since Jesus died for us on the cross and rose from the grave for our hope and justification, it's all linked together. It all goes together. So I'm very appreciative. I'm very appreciative that the Lord cares about the bird and its eggs because I know I do. And I think it's part of having a tender heart because you start hardening your heart toward living creatures. It just goes that way with everything around you. We want to have a tender heart. Besides, in the kingdom, there's like all kinds of like vipers that don't bite. Kids play with them. You know, lions that you pet and say, here, kitty, kitty. Like all that kind of stuff. Horses with bells on them that say holiness to the Lord. It's a big part of uh, 
the kingdom leaves the millennial reign has glorious things with animals. And so I love that. I think that's very, it's in the law. It's in God's civil law for them. And I think there's a good principle for us. Not that you have to try and rescue every spider in your house like I do, but you know, but flies must die. You know that flies must die, but um, flies must die. But spiders, they get at least one chance, you know. Uh, so anyways, it's just, you know what I'm saying? Like, it is what it is. So, verse 8, we read this. This is an interesting verse. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parafet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So this is, you know, those roofs like they have in the Middle East. This is a, a, a wall, right? Like a, a fence so you don't fall off the roof. It's a, it's a high thing. You know, if you've ever been with kids, like in a high rise, like you're like, whoa, you know, you don't like anything low. You like things high, like when you're at a hotel or, in a, or like a condo and on the 12th floor in San Diego. And there's like a, a, a low fence. When my sister Barbie was living in San Diego with her dog Romeo, it's a boxer, fence was this high. I was like, Barbie, Romeo could go right over this thing. Boxers can jump, you know, a boxer, they, 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 they got leaping power. I never felt good about Romeo being on that deck on the 10th floor in San Diego the whole time she lived down there. I feel a lot better about him being in that yard now in Florida, you know, chasing raccoons and squirrels and everything else. He chases possums, armadillos, gators, whatever you chase in Vero Beach, you know. But this is a legal responsibility to, it's a building code. This is a building code. You build the house, you have your deck up there like in Huntington Beach, you better have a high rail. And you're responsible for it. Because if someone goes up there and falls off of it, it's your blood guilt on you because you didn't build it. So again, God's just looking out for a commonality of safety for all people. When we built our pool years ago at Old Costa Mesa House, it was, it was so interesting to me. Like, we're just going to build a pool. The kids can have fun. Like, I didn't realize all that goes with building a pool. Like, your insurance goes way up if you're a homeowner. You didn't really see that one coming. And then you just always had that concern. Like, the dog might fall in the pool. The neighbor's cat. Kids, you know, you're legally responsible to have the certain locks on your sliding doors so someone can't just go through. Like, we used to have youth events all the time at our church, uh, from the church at our pool, and you just never, you're never settled because, as you know, pools are a risk. There was a responsibility legally that we had to change our sliding doors and accept different legal responsibilities being a homeowner with a pool as opposed to not having a pool. And... You accept that if you have a pool and you live in Palm Springs or you live somewhere like Orlando and you might have a pool, you just accept those risks. But like this building code, you have a higher risk and you're responsible for it. And I'm glad, I'm glad we are and I'm glad we do. So that's what you see there. That's, again, this is civil law. It's common sense. But, you know, sometimes you think about you know, those people in construction. We have people here that work in construction and that type of things. You ever work with people that build stuff without common sense? <laughs> Did you hear the chuckles? Don't you want people building your house and your condo that you're renting or living in that they're building it properly with common sense and continuity of the laws required of them? You don't want them cutting corners and, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's good. It's a good thing. Now, now we get these distinctions again. Verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard for different kinds of seeds, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of your clothing with which you cover yourself. This is all distinctions, which goes back to verse 5, with the woman not wearing a man's clothes and a man not wearing woman's clothes. It's distinctions that God has given, the distinctions. In the New Testament, there in the Corinthian church, Paul the Apostle, led by the Holy Spirit, said, What fellowship has Christ with Belial, demons? What fellowship has a cup of communion with the cup of demons? None. And what happens in the liberal church is that you get this ambiguity where the church follows the world and acts just like the world. I don't need the world giving me buzzwords that I need to say as a pastor. I can find my own words from the word of God. I'm not, I don't need months that I recognize certain things because the world's recognizing those things. Like, I don't. I'm not following the world. I'm leading the world. I'm not subject to what the world thinks. I'm not opposed to Black History Month. I'm not even opposed to Asian Pacific Month, which we just came through. But I don't, I, don't need, I don't need Black History Month to tell me black people are important. And I don't need Asian Pacific Month from the government to tell me Asian Pacific people are important. And I sure don't need the government to tell me the transgender month is important and people are important. They're all important. Christ died for them. Whether well, they got an American flag on their forehead or a rainbow flag, Christ died for them. 
or a Russian flag. I don't need a government telling me how to recognize something for a month. Because now I'm just following the world. So what I'm interested to see in this next month is how all these churches went and said, like, hey, we're doing African Black History Month. We're doing Asia Pacific Month. So now it's Transgender Month. So how are you going to handle that one? Because Christ died for transgender people. But homosexuality and lesbian is sin and immorality against the living God. That's a big difference from your gender or your ethnicity. There's a big difference recognizing an Asian Pacific person and a black person and a Middle Eastern person. I mean, it just keeps going on and on. I don't, Christ died for everybody. I don't need the government tell me to recognize a special month in my life. That makes them special citizens and degrades all the other citizens. Christ died for everybody. So if the world wants to do that, let them do that. But I don't, as a lead pastor of a church, I don't need the government tell me what I need to recognize or not recognize. The cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ tells me everything I need to recognize. And the Holy Spirit guides me in it. This church believes in the gospel and believes the depravity of all men. And that's why we sow how we sow. That's how we do for orphans what we do for orphans. That's what we do for widows what we do for widows. And that's what we do to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. There are distinctions. I don't need a table of Belial telling the table of Christ what we should recognize and what we shouldn't recognize and the words we need to use or shouldn't use. And I said this recently, nothing against the term community except it is against the term community. I've been in ministry for 30 years and I've watched the buzzwords come and go. Missional, intentional, all these new words we get that the world comes up with and they put them on the church. And that's fine except when their words have a different meaning to them than it has to us. Community for the world is USC football. Community for the world is going for the goal with Team USA. Community for the church is the body of Christ under the head and there's a big difference. You can go for gold without the head, Jesus Christ. You can cheer on USC football without the head, Jesus Christ. But we cannot function as a church in the body of Christ without the head, Jesus Christ. So that's why there's distinctions. We don't have fellowship with the cup of demons because we come to the cup, the cup of Christ at the table of the Lord. There are distinctions. Light is light and darkness is darkness. Life, death, justification, condemnation, heaven, hell. It's that simple. Christ or the devil. As Bob Dylan said, you have to serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. There's distinctions. You can't serve both. I'll never forget when I was a young pro surfer, Chuck Schmidt, who went to Calvary Costa Mesa, was with Bob Hurley from Hurley Clothing. They were taking me surfing and that's when Hurley, Bob Hurley did the surf shop and the boards before he did Billabong and then Hurley. They always told me about Jesus. I was the best surfer in California at the time. And I'll never forget this conversation I had with Bob Hurley and Chuck Schmidt. I was like 16 or 17. I was the best surfer in America. And uh, Chuck Schmidt was pretty bold. And he, you know, he's pointed on about Jesus and being born again and being saved. And, you know, I remember exactly how that conversation went. I did, it was the, not the first time I ever said this, nor the last, but I said, well, you know, I'm a good person. Uh, I'm Catholic. I went to catechism. I go to church sometimes. I mean, what do you mean, you know, born again, whatever? And he goes, well, Joey, you're saying you believe in God, but you're living for the world. You can't sit on the fence. You've got to be in this kingdom or that kingdom. I'll never forget it. And for the next seven years, I tried to live in both kingdoms and learn miserably that I could not. There is distinction So put the tassels on your robe and walk like a Christian, live like a Christian, and be a Christian. The tassels were for the people of covenant. Let the world put on girly clothes or men clothes or whatever. That's what the world's going to do. The Edomites do that, the Midianites, the Canaanites, whatever. That's their business. Your business as people of covenant is you put on the garment that God's called for you with the tassels that remind you you belong to the Lord. I'm glad God has distinctions. Man just muddles everything. Just getting so muddled. It's like art. Can you imagine like the beauty of like Van Gogh and Monet and all these artists, or even like more recently Thomas Kincaid or something, and the distinctions of colors and the uniqueness and the details. That's what God does. And then when you put a, a man and girl's clothes and vice versa and all that kind of stuff, and then you, you merge these things, it's all ambiguity. You know, it's like taking, it's like going to a museum with Van Gogh and just throwing paint over it. He took something beautiful with all the distinctions, the way God made them, the artists, the master artists, the Lord himself, 
And you just muddled it into one. You made it like finger paint, like when kids are working with finger paint. You had a blue and an orange, and then you just muddle all the energies. There's one goopy color that just has no distinction and no beauty. That's what this is. That's what we see going on in our world right now. You know what I said earlier? Don't remove the ancient boundaries. They're there for a reason. God draws distinction, whether it's with nations or the character of people. He draws distinctions. There's beauty in the diversity of the genders. There's beauty in the diversity of ethnicities and the people groups. There's beauty in the diversities of languages and customs and lifestyles. There's beauty in it. But the Antichrist himself is going to make one bland color of one world government that he controls with all the power of the devil, with no distinction and no beauty. Everyone's just going to be a walking zombie fallen after the devil himself under a spirit of delusion that God has allowed. Wear your robe with your tassels. Don't forget who we are, who we serve every day. I don't need a robe with tassels to remind me I represent Christ when I go out in the world, and you don't need to wear the robe with the tassels too, but the meaning behind the tassels is don't forget who you are. Or as Shakespeare said, to thy own self be true, and if we belong to Christ, then be true to Christ. Now we read some more stuff that I consider very unpleasant. If a man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came into her sexually, I found that she was not a virgin, then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife. He detests her. Now he's charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and punish him. And they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he's brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if this thing is true and the evidence of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men in the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So either this husband, and you know, we understand the Middle Eastern culture so often marriages are arranged and all that kind of stuff. And they're, they're often with very young girls as well. We know that even to this day. And some of this stuff is still very much in play in different cultures, if you don't know that. And so the esteem of virginity is very high in a lot of cultures, not so high in ours and in the Western world, but certainly in a lot of cultures like the Middle East and whatnot. So in this case, the man, I just feel sad. I just feel bad for the woman. She's going to be married to this guy who falsely accused her. That's just, the, man, good. Jesus first, then the man. And that's the only way you can do it. That's the only way you can do it. But it's just sad. It's just, I think my daughter's being in a situation like this or it's horrible. But again, this is contextual for them and how it was in their circumstances. But the woman, she'd be stoned. And so she would have been misleading that she was a virgin when she wasn't a virgin. So there's a great deception there, but it's all bad. It's just humanity. Verse 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, okay, that's adultery, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so he shall put away the evil from Israel. So when they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, that's a situation like, where's the guy? Because that's the exact situation that you have going here. People often say that story from John, like, where's the guy in all this? They just brought the woman. This is why. It would have been biblical, like, hey, you're going to bring this woman caught in adultery, the very act, and you better bring the man, too. But they didn't. And Jesus started writing in the sand, and the rest is history. Verse 23. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so he should put away the evil from among you. So she's engaged, she's a virgin, she's raped, she didn't cry out in the city, she's held accountable. I don't like that, but that's not the only thing that I've ever come along in the Word of God I don't like, but I still believe it and receive it. Verse 25, but if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death, for just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so it is in this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. So if a woman's raped in the woods, she's declared innocent, 
and the man gets capital punishment, which actually I do agree with because that's a horrible thing. And it's interesting. It's the same as if someone murdered someone. Did you guys catch that? It's the same as it's the same when she's raped in the countryside. It's the same as if someone murdered someone and he's going to be put to death. Now, we talked about curses of man that hangs on a tree Saturday night. Remember that? Well, you just can't you just can't do stuff like this in a civil society, in any society and certainly before the Lord. You changed this woman's life forever. You did this. Hang him. That's it. You're going to put him in some of these penitentiaries around the country where people never get out? You cannot let that person come back into society. Sin is so destructive, and the history of humanity is so evil, and I've said this many times, don't ever underestimate the goodness of the Lord, and don't ever overestimate the goodness of man. Because man is evil. The heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? We're evil, and humanity is in desperate need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We read on here, verse 28. If a man finds a young woman who's a virgin, who's not betrothed, and he sees her and lies with her, and they are found out, so that's kind of like two young people in agreement, sort of, verse 29. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he's humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all of his days. Okay, so that's like uh, premarital sex, if you will, in that situation. And you, you did that. She's your wife. That's the way it is. And it's the best plan going forward for society. And this is the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. So that would be like a, a stepmom or whatever. And by the way, just go like that is so, I don't like to think about stuff like that. But you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, when they say put out the sinful one, and give them over to the devil, this is exactly what was going on. There was a guy in the church in Corinth who was doing, this, was, this very thing was happening. And Paul's like, you, you guys blow my mind. You guys are crazy. Like, how are you even allowing this in your church? You need to deal with this. And I don't need to be there to tell you how to deal with this. I'm telling you right now, you need to deal with this and do it right now because this, this brings a blemish and a reproach on the church and a little leaven leavens a whole lot. First Corinthians 5. So we see that that actually happened in the New Testament church. In Corinth. Now, chapter 23. He who is emasculated or castrated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, this phrase, the assembly of the Lord, is really interesting here because it would seem the phrase assembly of the Lord is not so much like, the, like fellowship or congregation or worship, but the political elements that guided and governed Israel. The political elements. That's how most interpret this because this phrase comes up in these next few verses. So, a person who's castrated. By crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. They can't, they're not in politics. Uh, they can go to church and praise the Lord, but they are not in politics. Verse 2, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall be enter the assembly of the Lord. Again, this is not the United States of America or the parliament in England. This is the nation of Israel in a covenant with God. So we've got to keep that context in mind. To whom much is given, much is required. And these were just, this is the way it was. There might be a good reason for these things. And I can think of a few good reasons, but I'm just speculating. So it doesn't even matter. This is what God said. That's what matters. But just think how people are. Well, actually, we just think of being emasculated where people have changed genders. How we think about that. As Gavin Newsom's been potentially recalled, I don't even know Jenner's last first name anymore. He was Bruce Jenner, the Olympian. He won the gold medal in the 80s when Carl Lewis winning gold medals. He's a girl now, and he's running for governor, maybe. I'm so confused. I don't even pay attention to the news, but that's very confusing. He's emasculated, I think. I really don't know. But a man's wearing a woman's dress, so that goes back to what we already read. That just doesn't look right for leading a nation, for leading people in politics. It's all crazy. I was watching ESPN highlights, I don't know why, and they showed the WNBA and they were saying how they're celebrating this person is the first you know, transgender person playing the WNBA. And I was like, so that's a man that says he's a girl and he's playing professional basketball getting paid to do it. Like, how's that work? And they're celebrating it. 
So I have some ideas why someone's emasculated while they're not in the assembly. I told you I wouldn't say them, but I just did. <laughs> Verse 3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because, so now there's a because, they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pithor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace, nor their prosperity, all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Because the Edomites, of course, are descendants of Esau, and that's uh, Jacob's brother, the, the head of Israel. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So it would seem like Egyptians, three, year, three generations removed, can be involved in the assembly there. Well, it clearly says that. The Ammonite and the Moabite to the tenth generation, none. So, I don't know, like, they're just... What happens with countries, and we know this, the, when the Assyrians conquered people, they would take people that were conquered and remove them from where, where everything they knew and put them where everything they didn't know. And that's what they did. So they took Israel and moved them to these faraway lands in the northern kingdom. And he took these people from other lands, put them there. And they said, oh, it's because we don't worship the gods of the Hebrews that all these things happen to us. And as you displace people, you redefine the identity of a nation. And so this, this is really understood in all these governments around the world right now. And that's why you have closed borders where people don't want their identity redefined and open borders where they do. So, for example, Russia has very closed borders right now. And, you know, Putin pays Russians, the, the government gives them extra money for children. If you're both Russian and you've been Russians for generations and you're producing children, the government will fully subsidize you to raise more Russian children because you need more than two people to, to sustain the generation, the continuity of a, a culture and an identity. So we killed 80 million Americans through the unborn genocide, emphasized. And we've replaced them with 80 million people from other countries that have brought their ideas into us, into this country. Some have chosen to be Americans and acclimate, but many don't. And this dilutes the nation. So now we have people in politics who don't understand what Memorial Day is all about. Because their fathers didn't serve at Iwo Jima. They didn't serve in Bella Woods. They didn't fight in the Civil War. They didn't hold off the Chinese communist attack in the Korean War. They didn't get accommodation for that. They're from another country. They have no idea what blood was spilt to establish this country and these freedoms. They weren't part of the American Revolution. They don't know anything like that. Their cousins weren't shot down in B-17 bombers. They don't know that. They, their dad didn't go off to Vietnam and come back and be ridiculed by all your peer group and your friends like my dad did. They don't have a picture of the dad's bullet shot in his back or the bullet hole in the helicopter. My dad does. So these people who know nothing about our country and our identity and why we are who we are, they come to power one generation later and they're trying to redefine our entire country from within and it's deliberate. And it's a pretty helpless feeling at times. And that's presuming we're all dealing with the same deck of cards. And the hand's not against us. But alas, Mongolia once was the most powerful country in the world. And look at them now. China was the weakest country in the world 150 years ago. Look at them now. Germany could have conquered the world. They almost did. And look at them now. You see, God's not mocked. God is not mocked. As a man sows, so shall he reap. And as a nation sows, so shall they reap. And you let Edomites, Ammonites come to places of power and remove the ancient boundaries that God's given for his people. And you remove prayer from the public school system and you mock it. And you remove the Ten Commandments from the public school system and you mock it. And you, you encourage genital mutilation of elementary age kids and you mock those who speak against it. And you bring this in, this is what happens. And we all know this is what's going on. This is, what's, this is why God said, don't let this happen. Because these people don't think like you. They don't have the tassels on their robes like you. 
They don't have your worldview. They don't understand why you are who you are and what makes you special. Again, I keep saying this in this type of context. The good news with Israel is whenever it was bad, you could still be good. You could still be Esther. You could still be Jeremiah. You could still be Ezekiel. You could still make the right decisions. You and I making the right decisions, this church making the right decisions in a deluded culture like we're in right now, it's honorable to the Lord. God is using you. God is using us. God is pouring out his spirit on his church. And his spirit being poured out on us is not measured by what decisions favorably or disfavorably anyone makes in our country in the places of power. This has been the theme the last few weeks that God is speaking to us. But make no mistake, there's a reason why the Edomites and Ammonites do not reign in Israel. Because they don't understand the covenant, they don't know how we got here, they don't know what we're about, and they don't understand what God blesses and what God doesn't. They don't understand what's holy and sacred. We want to always understand as the Church of Jesus Christ, not American citizens, but as the Church of Jesus Christ, we want to always understand what's holy and sacred, the life of the unborn to the life of the elderly with severe Alzheimer's. From the womb to the tomb, all lives do matter. And what's holy and sacred is the blood of Jesus Christ to save people. What's holy and sacred is the gospel being preached to the lost that they can be saved. What's holy and sacred is God's heart for the orphan. What's holy and sacred is God's heart for the widow. What's holy and sacred is us caring about birds and their eggs on the path. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing is pure. So we need to make sure we're the ones who are pure. Because we are the assembly in the church. And this next generation needs leadership. And we can't be emasculated or Edomites trying to lead them. We need to be empowered and led through humility, empathy, and compassion to lead the assembly. I can't think about what my grandchildren will face 40 years from now if the Lord tarries. But what I can think about is preparing them for that day. Because Jesus is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, when he shall go outside the camp, I don't want to know what that is. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that you shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement amongst your equipment. When you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuge. In other words, pour a potty outside the camp. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give you your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean among you, unclean thing among you, and turn away from you. It's common sense. The phrase, the Lord walks, it says, the Lord God walks in the midst of your camp. Jesus said in the Church of Revelation, he walks in the midst of the churches. You know what I remind myself so often when I'm in the pulpit like right now? That Jesus is walking in our midst. That he's here in our midst. And when I'm really struggling, I look right up over that clock where Garrett is up there. I don't see Garrett. I see Jesus above him at the right hand of the Father. Because I know by faith Jesus has been in every Bible study, every worship set, every prayer, every offering, every conversation in this place. It's a holy place. Verse 15. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. So if a slave escaped from a faraway country, you're not going to return him. You're going to give them refuge. And by the way, I've been thinking about this. I want to be a person of refuge for runaway people. Me, personally. You. I want people to be able to find refuge with me. If they're in bondage and they're running away from something, I'm not enabling them to run away from the Lord, but I want to be a place of refuge. We've talked about the city's refuge. I think it'd be nice if people look at our lives and our home and who we are, that we're people of refuge, that we're a place of comfort and hope. goes on to say in verse 17, there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or perverted ones of the sons of Israel. That's homosexual prostitutes. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog. And yeah, harlots, homosexual prostitutes, and dogs in the house of the Lord your God for any avowed offering for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So obviously, 
You just never know. People do weird things. People do really weird things. When people get religious, they do really weird things. They're prostitutes. They have openly gay lifestyles, and they bring money to church and say, we love the Lord. No, you don't. You're deceived. Verse 19. You shall not charge your interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So the people of covenant were to be generous and sharing with one another, gracious and sharing. Now, with non-people of covenant, they could, you know, because a lot of commerce, people came from other countries to do commerce with Israel, they could do their interest rates and all that kind of stuff, but they weren't to take advantage of the brethren. Verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. So it's a vow to the Lord. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So that's a good warning. Like, obviously, you know, Jesus said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And we understand that the credibility and the integrity of our words is everything. I don't think any of us has perfection in that. But we should have a really high batting average in that. Like, as a whole, the overall scope of our life is the integrity of our words, the consistency. And you get wiser where what you commit to, what you don't commit to. And especially with the Lord, don't make hasty vows with the Lord. We don't have to. Just, you know, I swear by the temple or the goal of the temple to say, Lord, here I am. I'm willing. And the next thing you know, you're getting off a plane in Russia or Mauritania. You, just, you don't have to make a hasty vow. Just say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Finally, verse 24. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of the grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of your hand, like Jesus and his disciples did, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Yeah, so you've got to respect that space. So you can, you know, when you go by, you can pick the oranges off the tree hanging over the fence or whatever. Going up in Carlsbad, we used to skate down across Highland Street, down to Tamarack, and there's all these orange trees in the front yard. We'd be starving. We could grab those oranges. You know, it's kind of that mindset. But you're not going to show up with a bushel and start pulling, pulling the oranges and filling up bushels and selling them in front of our house for a bushel of oranges for five bucks or something. Just the idea that God is always looking out for people, and we should always be looking out for people. And isn't it about today? It's immediate needs, right? You can pick the oranges. You can pick the grapes, the figs, the, the wheat for today. But your, your neighbor's not obligated to give you more than a couple oranges off the tree. Go get your own orange tree and develop your own orange grove and your own orange juice business. Okay. See, like, I kind of like that. Like, hey, you're poor. You need an avocado. Here you go. But uh, I'm not obligated to help you produce a new avocado business with my avocados. That's, these are my avocados. You can have this one for your lunch, but you're not taking these for your new business. It's, it's respect of personal property. Don't you love the law? Yeah, this is the law for the nation functioning together. And again, we're not under this law, but the principles are good for us. So, yeah, there's a lot there. I'm sure the Lord will guide us in what it means to each of our lives.